Well, be that as as it may, Paul is addressing the specific area of life in which we are called to please God. It is the area of sexual behavior. And what I want us to do with this passage is to take a wide angle lens view of it as we look at what Paul's teaching is here in this section. And if we take a wide angle lens view of this passage, verses 1 to 8, where we're called to please God, to live in order to please God, what we will see is this. We will see how God-centered this teaching is. How God-centered it is. And why is that significant? Because if we are Christians, we are those who know God. Look at verse 5. Right in the heart of this passage. He tells Christians, he tells us not to behave in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. But if we are Christians, we do know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, doesn't he, in John 14, if you know me, you know the Father. And then Philip says, well, show us the Father. And Philip says, Jesus says to Philip, don't you know me, Philip? After such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Christians are those who know God, unlike the non-Christian Gentiles, or as this translation puts it, the pagans in verse 5. We are those who know God. And if we do know God in the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage tells us four things about us, four God-centered things about us and our sexual behavior. Firstly, We are those who have received God's call. Secondly, we are those who know God's will. Thirdly, we are those who have received God's Holy Spirit. And fourthly, we are those who know the reality and the seriousness of the Lord's judgment. These all are found in our passage today. So look with me at the, these four points about the God-centered ethic that Paul is teaching us here. We are those who have received God's call. Look at verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. We have been called by God in Christ to live a holy life, a life set apart, set apart for God, set apart from sin and worldliness. We are those who have received God's call. Secondly, we are those who know God's will. Look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, made holy, set apart, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust. We know God's will, that we should avoid sexual immorality. And the word that is used there covers all kind of sexual behavior outside of marriage between a man and a woman. The word pornea covers all kinds of sexual behavior outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That was the Jewish understanding. That is the Christian understanding. That was what was understood by the word in the ancient world of Greek and Rome. So sex outside of marriage is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Same-sex relationships are wrong. 
The only safe context for the fire to burn is in the fireplace. And likewise, we are to avoid sexual immorality. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we may quote this later on, flee. <laughs> he says, flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Run away from it, like Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife. So if we are those who know God, we are those who have received God's call, verse 7, to live a pure and holy life. We are those who know God's will, verse 3, that we be sanctified, that we are different and live different lives from non-Christians. Then thirdly, we are those who have received God's Holy Spirit, verse 8, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And the emphasis there in the original is on the word holy Usually those words appear together in the original language, just as they do in English, Holy Spirit, Spirit, Holy. But the way Paul writes it, he says, God gives you the spirit of holiness. God's spirit is a Holy Spirit and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So we are those who have received God's call not to be impure, but to live holy lives. We are those who know God's will, that we be sanctified, that we avoid sexual immorality in all its different shapes and forms. We are those who receive God's Holy Spirit, that we be holy as God himself is holy. And then fourthly, we are, know, we are those who know the reality and the seriousness of God's judgment, verse six. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. We know the reality and seriousness of God's judgment. Just notice there what Paul says at the end of that verse, as we told you and warned you before. <laughs> Think about Paul and Silas and Timothy had just been a few weeks in Thessalonica before they had to get out, before they were driven out of the city and had to run. And yet, and yet right at the start of their teaching, do you see that? They have taught these Christians not only about the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, not only about the wonderful promises of life and salvation through Christ, but the radical transformation, the call to radical discipleship that being a Christian involves. As we told you and warned you before, he had told them and warned them before about Matters of morality. How to live in a sexually confused and a sexually liberal society. And sometimes we, particularly those of us, uh, you know, we, we, we of course we rejoice in the grace of God and the gospel. But we maybe shy away from the ethical teaching and the moral teaching of scripture. We don't want to be seen to be legalists. But as I was trying to say to the, the children, the God who loves us and called us to a holy life in Christ is the God who knows what is best for us. That's not legalism. That's living out the grace of Christ in daily life, displaying grace. So I hope you can see this is a God-centered sexual ethic. God's call, God's will, God's Holy Spirit, God's judgment. And those who know God know these things as well. Now, in some ways, I could leave it at that and leave you to think through what that means for you and for me to live in order to please God in this area of life. 
But here are some pointers. For example, you might want to think how this teaching affects how you look at other people. Whether it's the attractive stranger walking down the street, your colleague in the workplace, or your classmate at school. Well, you might say, well, James, it's not, it's not wrong to look at a beautiful woman or a handsome man. Well, it's not, it's not, long to, it's not wrong to look. It's, it's how we look, isn't it? <laughs> how long we look. And as someone has said, it's not the first look, it's the second look. It's the look back. <laughs> we might want to think how this teaching affects the kind of programs we watch, the films we watch, the online websites you look at. Young folks, particularly young guys, the schools are awash with pornography. It's easily available. Are you going to take a stand because of Christ? Of course, there'll be a cost. People will laugh. I have a friend. He's now married with three children. I tell you that because it becomes relevant to the story. But when he was a teenager at school and was a Christian, he refused to look at pornography that some of the other guys were wanting to show him. And they accused him of being gay. Well, he wasn't gay. And even if he was gay (laughs) or struggled with same-sex attraction, it was still the right thing not to look at pornography, which treats women, and it seems to be mainly female pornography, treats women as objects and paints a picture that just destroys the whole reality of what life and sexual behavior should be undergone. So this teaching is very practical. It affects what kind of things we look at. It affects the kind of relationships we have with others, whether we are married or single. It affects what kind of stories or jokes we tell or listen to. It affects what kind of places we go to in our mind and in our hearts, as well as physically and literally. It affects who you meet up with on your own. It affects how you react when sexual temptation comes, which it will do and does do. It affects how you will react when temptation comes. We're going to speak a little bit about this in a minute or two. You know, I'll leave it for a minute or two. Okay, come back to it. It affects how you deal when when loneliness is painful and acute. And I know loneliness can be painful and acute. I was only a few days short of my 38th birthday before I was married. I know, I put in a quotation from John Stott about singleness. I'm not going to read it out, but it's worth looking at as a 90-year-old man who lived 90 years of life as a single man, just as Jesus was single, just as the Apostle Paul was single. This passage, this teaching, this God-centered ethic, this God-centered sexual morality, how does it affect what you do when the opportunity is before you, just as it was with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, when Potiphar's wife propositioned him. Will you listen to it? Or will you run? (laughs) Flee from sexual immorality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. We remember as Christians God's call. God did not call us to live an impure life, but a holy life. God's will that we be sanctified, that we be set apart for Christ to avoid sexual immorality. God's Holy Spirit 
and the warning of God's judgment. But I want to finish with two questions. And then we'll spend, you may wonder what happened to the prayers of intercession today. I'm going to pray at the end of the sermon today just to bring some of these things together in prayer. But two questions to finish with. Here's a question that you will meet sometimes in some situations. First question is this, who is this fellow Paul (laughs) to tell us what to do and how to live our lives? What right does a single man have writing from the first century AD to tell us how to live in 21st century Britain? I remember one time we were discussing something along these lines uh, when I was a student of theology at St. Andrews University and there was a number of us and I mean, it was, an, uh, it was a friendly enough conversation. And I happened to quote something from one of Paul's letters. And one of the other students said, that's just Paul. That's just Paul. Thereby dismissing, you know, two thirds of the New Testament canon. That's just Paul. It's not relevant. Well, two things to say in response to that first question. What right does the Apostle Paul have to tell us? Firstly, 21st century Britain is not that different from 1st century Greece and Rome, and increasingly so. Human nature, human desires, human weakness, human sinfulness are the same as they always have been. Human nature has not changed down the years. But secondly, Paul is aware that as an apostle, his teaching is in the name and through the authority of the Lord Jesus. Do you notice that in verse 2? For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul is aware that his apostolic teaching comes with the authority of the risen Christ. And so was Peter. There's that verse in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 2, where Peter writes and says, I want you to recall the commands given by the holy prophets. And then he says this, the command given by your, or our Lord and Savior through your apostles. The command given by our Lord and Savior Jesus through your apostles. And then you look at verse 8 as well. And you realize that Paul knows that the instructions, the teaching which the Thessalonians have received from him, the apostolic teaching, the apostolic tradition, it has been given to them in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is nothing less, therefore, than the word of God, if Christ is God. It's nothing less than the word of God, a word of God that does not change down the years. And then he says this, anyone who, injure, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. I mean, could, it, could it be any more serious? Could it be any more serious? Paul is saying that to reject his teaching is to reject the authority and commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to reject the word of God, which is to reject God. So as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul has every right to tell us how to live in order to please God. To reject his apostolic teaching is to reject God himself. And in fact, there's an echo of what he has already said in chapter 2, verse 13, when he says how they received his teaching as it is the word of God. Well, the second question is this. That was the first question. Who is this fellow Paul to tell us what to do? The second question is this. What resources does God give us 
to live in order to please him. What help, what resources does God give us to live in order to please him? Because this is difficult. It's difficult to live in this world with these cross currents. Um, You know, if you go on an adventure course or outdoors, you'll go to the room to get kitted up, won't you? You go and get the equipment, the hard helmet, the harness, the flotation device, whatever it is you might need (laughs) before you do what you're going to do. What is God giving to us to help us live in order to please him in this world of swirling currents in terms of sexual practice? Well, he gives us his word and his spirit. His word and his spirit. How can a young man, how can a young person live a pure life? How can a young person stay on the path of purity? The psalmist says, by living according to your word, Psalm 119 verse 9. And the psalmist also says, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you see? What does he mean? I've hidden your word in my heart. I've taken your word in. As we hear it, like today, we are feeding on it. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as we feed on it, just as we eat food, we take the food in and the goodness in the food becomes part of our body. So when we eat God's word, when we nourish, nourish by it, it becomes part of us and we hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Which means, it does mean recalling and bringing to mind passages like this, that we are those who've been called by God to live a holy life. We are those who are called to follow God's will that we be sanctified and flee from sexual immorality. That we are those who've been given God's Holy Spirit. That we are those who know the warning of God's punishment. So that's the first resource, the Word of God. And then secondly, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Because God's word and God's spirit must never be divorced or divided. John Stott has said somewhere that the word without the spirit is powerless and the spirit without the word is weaponless. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. If you stop and think about that for a moment, isn't that that amazing? That our bodies, our physical bodies, are temples, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit the spirit of holiness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't he, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are not your own. There's the Bible's answer to personal autonomy. (laughs) No, no, you're not your own. You've been bought with the blood of Christ. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You've been called to live for Christ in the power of the spirit of holiness. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Well, if that is the responsibility that being temples of the Holy Spirit brings to it, it also brings us the privilege, doesn't it? There's a huge privilege, enormous privilege in having the resource, if we may say it like that, of the Holy Spirit living within us. Because God's Holy Spirit is given to us to help us live lives that honor and please him. To honor him with our bodies and all their God-given biological desires. 
God gives us his Holy Spirit to give us the strength to resist temptation, to give us the wisdom to follow the narrow way of righteousness. Whatever everybody else is doing, whatever our friends are saying and doing, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire and the ability to cling tightly to Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit who moves us to be careful to follow God's decrees and to be careful to keep his laws. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. It is the Holy Spirit through our union with Christ, the bond of our union with Jesus Christ, who sets us free from the tyranny of sin and from the dictatorship of our own needs. Sets us free to be holy and honorable. Free to sow, not sin that leads to destruction and wrath, but free to sow that which pleases the Spirit, that we might then grow the fruit of the Spirit, which is, what's the last part of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. That is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control. But we cannot end without mentioning that this is the same Holy Spirit who brings to us the presence and the pardon of Christ. This is the Holy Spirit who brings to us the person of Jesus and the pardon of Jesus. For those times when we have sinned sexually, and there's not a person in this room who's never sinned sexually, whether in your heart or your thoughts or in some other way, the Holy Spirit brings to us the person of Jesus and the pardon of Jesus for those times when we have failed, when we have lost self-control, when we have burned ourselves and others with fire that was meant to be kept in God's holy fireplace. Jesus spoke to the woman caught in adultery. What did he ask her? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. No one. Because none of us, none of us is in any position to condemn anyone else when it comes to sin and sexual sin. And the only human being who ever lived who was in a position to condemn sinners said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are weak and we need the strength of your Holy Spirit. We need the presence of Christ. We need the courage of Christ to enable us to negotiate the confusing and conflicting messages that the world gives to us. We need your help in our weakness to resist the pressure to conform. We need your help, Father. We need your word and your spirit to help us not be molded into the world's likeness, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So help us to remember, help us to hide this word in our hearts that we are those by the grace of God know you, Father, as our God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are those who know you. 
And therefore, we are those who have been called by you to live a holy life. We are those who have known your will and know your will that we be sanctified and flee from sexual immorality. That we are those who know the warnings of judgment. And we are those who have been given the gift of your Holy Spirit. So help us, Father. Protect us, those of us who are married. Watch over our marriages and protect them from the attacks of the evil one. Help us to guard our hearts and to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. For those of us who are single, Father, and whatever way we have come to that position of singleness, we look to you, Father, to help us in the times of pain, of loneliness, of frustration. Help us, Lord, to know that we can honor you with our bodies as we offer them to you as a living sacrifice. And to direct our, our relationships into healthy, healthy relationships. People of the opposite sex and the same sex in a way that is honoring to you. And we pray especially for our young folks. We pray, Father, for those who are facing a, an onslaught of, it's not just temptation, but it is teaching that is wicked, that is sinful, that is against your word. Strengthen our young people, Father. Watch over them. Help them by the grace of God. By your grace, Father, your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ to follow the way of Christ. Help them to know, Father, that what you have promised us in Christ and what you will give to us in Christ, either here or in eternity, far outweighs, far outweighs any suffering or pain that we might be called to endure here for the sake of the name of Christ. And Father, for our government and legislation, we pray for that, Father. We, we confess and acknowledge that so often in recent years, laws have been passed that go directly against your wise and loving and holy word. Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us and raise up, raise up men and women in our parliaments uh, and assemblies who will be bold and wise like Joseph and Daniel and his friends and others, to speak truth in love, and that in your mercy you might protect our nation from ungodliness and, and, and redirect us, save us, restore us from the, from the road to judgment to the road to mercy and revival. Father, forgive us where we have sinned, Forgive us through the, the blood of Christ and in the name of the one who is, who is grace unlimited, grace abounding, overflowing to the chief of sinners. Oh, Father, let us not go from this place in any way pumped up with self-righteousness, but rather with that righteousness of Christ that leads to a humble and a holy living for others and help us to help those who are struggling father help us to those who help us to help those who have been hurt and are hurting when relationships have gone sour and when there's been infidelity and unfaithfulness and broken promises help us to reach out in love 
Help us to reach out with the Spirit of Christ. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. But go now and leave your life of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 